Hello and welcome to The Climate Conversation. I'm Dan Brissett, Executive Director of the Environmental and Energy Study Institute. Today, I am not joined by my regular co-host, Emma Johnson. I am instead joined by special guest co-host, Anna McGinn. Anna is our Policy Manager at EESI, and you may remember her from uh, all of the articles she's edited and the facts she's had input on and the briefing she's co-moderated, especially around COP26, which of course took place last fall. Anna, Thank you so much for joining us today for this great episode about climate adaptation research and action. And I can see you on the Zoom, but it's also gonna be great to hear you in a minute. Hi Dan, thanks so much for having me. Really looking forward to the conversation. As you said, we're gonna be talking about climate adaptation research and action in the context of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Report that just came out a couple of weeks ago. That report's focused on climate impacts, adaptation, and vulnerability. Before we jump in with our guests today, uh, just a little background on the IPCC, which is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. The IPCC is a part of the United Nations. Its role is to assess the current science on climate change by looking across all the scientific research out there and pulling it into one place. There are thousands of authors and researchers and reviewers involved in the process from around the world. And the idea behind bringing together all this information is to help inform decision makers at all levels of government as they develop climate policy. It's also heavily used as a part of the international climate negotiations. Dan, just like you mentioned, COP26, and we also are going to discuss that in just a bit. To date, the IPCC has completed five assessment reports, and we are in the middle of the sixth assessment report cycle right now. The second part of the report was just released at the end of February. And in addition to these assessment reports, the IPCC also conducts special reports. There have been three of those so far, one on assessing the impacts of global warming at 1.5 degrees Celsius, one on climate change and land, and the most recent one on ocean and the cryosphere, cryosphere meaning ice. So with that background, Dan, over to you to introduce our guests for today. Thanks, Anna. And to help us break down how the IPCC report applies to policymakers and to dive into opportunities to advance adaptation research, we're joined by our guest today, Dr. Anand Patwardhan. Anand is a professor at the University of Maryland, Go Terps, teaching classes on global environmental policy. He was a coordinating lead author for both the fourth and fifth assessment reports for the IPCC, and he was a co-chair of the Adaptation Research Alliance. The Adaptation Research Alliance is a global collaborative effort to increase investment and opportunities for action research to develop and inform effective adaptation solutions. The initiative was officially launched at the UN Climate Change Conference last November, COP26. Anand, welcome to the show today. Thanks, Anna and Dan. Pleasure to be here with you. So Anand, we're going to just jump right in. And as we mentioned, at the end of February, the IPCC released the second of three major sections of the sixth assessment report. The report is global in scope and covers climate impacts as well as our capacity to adapt to those impacts. Much has been covered in the news about that first aspect, the impacts. So we're going to focus today on the opportunities and challenges around adaptation. So our first question for you is, what are a few of your high-level takeaways on the adaptation section of the report, specifically for our policymaker audience? Thanks, Anna. That's a great question. And perhaps uh, uh, before getting to the question itself, I might want to spend just a minute on, on a bit of context. You did introduce the IPCC and the fact that the IPCC does its work through three working groups that focus on different aspects of the issue. 
Working Group 1, whose report came out just a few months ago before COP26 in Glasgow, addresses the underlying science of climate change and what the resulting changes in the climate might look like. Working Group 2, which we're discussing today, looks at the literature around the consequences of climate change, you know, what the impacts are at different levels of warming, and then, of course, what the responses to those impacts might be, uh, which is what we refer to as adaptation. And then the Working Group 3 report, which will come out just a, a few months later this year, focuses on mitigation, which is about ways to reduce emissions and avoid the problem in the first place. And so with that little bit of context on the, on the working groups and the structure of the three reports, what are some of the key messages? I think there's sort of really four aspects I might want to, to highlight. And of course, you know, the report is, is many thousands of, of pages of text, even though what you might actually look at uh, is the much shorter summary for policymakers, the SPM, uh, which tries to distill all of that a voluminous material into you know maybe 30 odd pages of key messages and findings but at the higher level i think one of the ideas that comes through very very clearly from the report is the notion of urgency that uh, climate change is is not really a problem of some remote distant future it's in the here and now it's seen in the intensification of heat waves in the intensification of tropical cyclones hurricane harvey is a great example of that intensification and there's a lot of robust science now that, that is able to attribute some of these extreme events we are seeing today to anthropogenic climate change. So, so it's really the sense of urgency. There's also, I think, a very clear sense of that every degree of warming matters. So every half a degree of warming matters. So when the, the global community came together in Paris to, hold, uh, to set the target of holding warming to well below two degrees, uh, well, that two degrees is really, in that sense, an upper bound. And so 1.5 reinforces, really, I think, the message in the special report on 1.5 degrees that impacts scale and become much, much worse very quickly as temperatures increase. I think that's a, that's a very consistent message coming out. I think the other really important contribution of the report is to shine a spotlight on who is most vulnerable. Right, that these impacts are not uniformly distributed around the world. In fact, they're not even uniformly distributed within countries. And it's often precisely the communities that are already marginalized, that are already suffering from various levels of environmental distress, economic deprivation, uh, that are often the most at risk. So it's really shines the spotlight on the fact that vulnerability is very unequally distributed. And then the final point really, I think, coming to the question of adaptation, is that there are solutions, there are communities are, are adapting already uh, that are on the front lines, but that's not happening at the scale and the urgency needed. And so really the question of how do we uh, make adaptation become truly everyone's business and, and avoid falling into the trap of it being no one's business is I think kind of the underlying key idea here. Thank you so much for outlining those four key messages. And you mentioned the summary for policymakers. So I want to go back to that for a moment, because we probably have a lot of policymakers or people that support policymakers in our audience. So even that summary can be quite dense and maybe a little daunting to look into. So I'm curious if you have any advice for someone who's looking to review the summary or review other aspects of the report, tips or tricks for doing that effectively. 
thanks, and I and absolutely. I mean, the the report, as I as you said, is is many thousands of pages, and even the summary uh, is very dense, uh, thirty odd pages of text and figures. One thing to perhaps keep in mind is that the summary for policymakers is a negotiated document. It is actually negotiated line by line, sometimes word for word, in a plenary that goes over many sleepless nights and days. And you have literally hundreds of uh, delegates from different countries and the author team themselves that are crafting that uh, language in the, in the summary for policymakers. So the SPM does have a lot of significance because it really, in a sense, reflects also the consensus, not only in the science scientific community, but also consensus among the policymakers around what, what they are seeing as those messages. So if you kind of uh, look at the content itself of the SPM, sort of at the high level, uh, that content is organized really around four sections. You know, a, the first section gives a bit of introduction and background. Uh, the second section, which is really the, a, a key section, lays out the impacts and risks. You know, what are those risks? How do they increase at different levels of warming? You know, how do they affect key regions and sectors, whether it's uh, you know, the marine sector, it's coasts, it's uh, cities, it's forests, it's agriculture, sort of lays out really what those impacts and risks are. Third section uh, describes some of the options to respond and manage those risks, actions that are already being done that could be taken. And then the fourth section in this particular report cycle uh, really is an interesting attempt to synthesize uh, some of this into a perspective around climate resilient development. What might development look like in a world that is threatened by climate change? How do we ensure that uh, we are able to continue to prosper uh, even in a changing climate. And so that sort of focus on climate resilient development is one of the more interesting aspects, uh, particularly in this working group to report. Thanks, Anand. That is all super interesting. You're someone who comes at this. You've been part of these efforts to develop these reports for some time. And it's fascinating listening to um, and sort of monitoring how they've come and developed over the years. But I'd like to ask now about maybe some forward-looking thoughts. And I'm curious, what do you see as the major needs and opportunities going forward for climate adaptation work? Thanks, Dan. And, and I think that's a really important question because, you know, one of the themes uh, for Glasgow that you might remember was sort of that this was the decade for action. Right? That this, this decade was sort of the make or break decade where the actions we take or don't take today will will set us on on the course for what happens in the future and that's i think as true of mitigation as it is in the context of adaptation so just as in the case of uh, mitigation we are concerned about ensuring that the investments we make today uh, don't lock us into a high carbon future but rather uh, enable us to move to a low carbon future in exactly the same way, I think we are making long-term investments, for example, in infrastructure, in building cities, uh, particularly in the developing world, where a lot of the new uh, infrastructure is still to be built and being built, is that we, we do it in a way that now, in addition to being low carbon, also promotes resilience, uh, doesn't uh, lead us to, to increase risk. Right? So this, this notion that we need that we have this window of, of opportunity is 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 a key one and that i think is one of the uh, also themes that was picked up in 
the report of the Global Commission on Adaptation, which I had the pleasure of working with a couple of years ago, which really called for three revolutions, uh, a revolution in understanding, uh, in planning, and of course, in finance. And the starting point of that was, of course, knowledge, right? So better information that informs all of our planning decisions. And that's, I think, going to be a key focus of research in the, the coming years is to make sure that we get the right information uh, that decision makers need. And whether these are utility planners at the, at the local level, whether these are uh, counties that are thinking about land use and zoning, whether this is the federal government thinking about long-term investments, uh, you know, we have investments going in infrastructure, for example. So really decisions at all levels, uh, planning decisions, of course, and then which are enabled and supported by finance. So I would say really uh, in, in a sentence, the major need being to shift gears from what I would call a focus of research on risks or on the problem space, as it were, to a focus of research on the solution space. What do we do about those risks? And I think that's, a, that's going to be a really big shift that we need to see happen uh, over this, this coming decade uh, in order to support action. We mentioned at the top that you're the co-chair of the Adaptation Research Alliance, which in many ways is trying to do or facilitate that shift that you just mentioned. So I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit more about the Alliance's work and specifically its focus on action research, and maybe give us a little bit of a sense of what's the difference between action research and traditional research, and why is a reframing around action research really necessary in your opinion? And in the work of the Adaptation Research Alliance. Thanks, Anna. So, so as I said, a, a lot of uh, action starts first, of course, with the right understanding and the right knowledge. In this case, the way we look at action research is research that produces this actionable knowledge, uh, knowledge that can directly feed into decisions, that can support and inform decisions. And again, as I said, there's a whole range of decisions that need to be informed by climate information, right? Whether this is at the individual, at the household level, this is a farmer trying to figure out, you know, what crops to plant for the next cycle, uh, given uncertainties in the weather, to a, a, a water resource manager trying to figure out how to handle a changes in precipitation that are leading to water stress, or it's a utility planner trying to project, you know, what is the... Uh, uh, peak demand in the summer because warmer climate means more demand for air conditioning and cooling. The decisions that are being taken at, at all levels that need to be informed by, by the right kind of climate information, right? At the right scale, at the right time. That's one dimension, right? So the, the information that feeds into decision. The other dimension is really around solutions, uh, whether these are solutions in terms of developing new heat tolerant crops or solutions in terms of integrating better disease surveillance so that we can figure out cli how climate change is affecting the shifts in vector-borne diseases, whether it's uh, diseases that are well known like malaria or even new diseases like uh, dengue, which are, which are now being seen in parts of the world where they've never been seen before. So it's really focused on uh, solutions now of how to respond to these new and changing risks. So that's how we see action research, both on the solution space and uh, in the right climate information on the problem space. But then you might ask, as you said, you know, why do we need an alliance? What's the role of the, the ARA? It's really that we don't have enough of it. 
that uh, going back as we were starting to talk about the IPCC report, it's worth reminding ourselves that what the IPCC assesses is assesses scientific knowledge for the most part, as you see in peer-reviewed journal articles. Well, it turns out that a lot of the knowledge of solutions actually rests in with practitioners. It's people out there in the field who are doing things, who are, who are adapting already. Uh, so it's really, I think, one of the goals of the ARA is to shift from perhaps a paradigm of research that focuses on the production of sort of formal scientific knowledge through the peer review process to really research that connects uh, with action, that sort of gets out of the lab and into the field and brings the field into the lab, as it were. And this is really a, this is really a big change. It, it's a change often in, in our institutions, in our incentive structures. I'm an academic, so I will understand how academia, uh, what some of the pressures in academia are. It requires a change amongst our research funding agencies that fund the research to make it more solutions oriented and decision oriented. But also equally, I think requires a shift in how we support action, uh, right? So very often when we talk to action funders, they want to just get on with the work. They don't see the importance of knowledge. But in the case of adaptation, especially given the fact that climate change, climate is uncertain, that we will need to be flexible. We will need to learn as we go along. We need to really bring research much more front and center into the uh, process of implementation and action. Most of our conversation so far has been about the IPCC and sort of global uh, reports that have a, a global focus, but uh, the United States also puts together high-level climate research reports, and we call them national climate assessments. What are the opportunities for adaptation action, action research that would help inform the next national climate assessment, and are there other ways that the federal government might be able to support or engage in action research to advance climate adaptation? Thanks, Dad. That's a great question. That's a really important. Uh, it's a really important one. Um, you you talked about the national climate assessment. Well, there is also the U.S. Global Change Research Program, which uh, the USGCRP, which by law is is required to coordinate, act as a coordinating mechanism uh, amongst the various agencies. And and the USGCRP obviously has also a key role to play in ensuring that the the, the right kind of investments go into research that will then inform assessments like the National Climate Assessment, because they ultimately the NCA or indeed the IPCC, which is sort of the global, uh, this process playing out at the global level, does depend on production of, of knowledge that can then be assessed. And so I think we have to look at it both in terms of the National Climate Assessment itself, the process of the assessment, and ensure that that process uh, actually uh, responds to stakeholder needs at varying levels at the, uh, that, uh, that may be regionally specific, that may be sectorally specific, that may be often driven by local, uh, at the local and state level. So, so one dimension of this is sort of at the, the assessment process that really lays greater emphasis on responses, on solutions, on what is happening in practice, on what is working and what is not working, on questions of effectiveness, costs, and benefits. And then the, the other side of the question is ensuring that uh, through the USGCRP, the investments that are going into the underlying research, whether it's funding through 
science funding agencies like the NSF or NOAA or NASA, uh, or even some of the other agencies like DOE that support scientific research is actually strengthening and, and pushing the scientific community to produce the kind of knowledge that can then get picked up through processes like this NCA. Zooming back out now to the international level, the Adaptation Research Alliance has done an evidence review of research in action. So I'm wondering if you could share with us a couple examples from that review to really bring the ideas that we've been talking about here today to life. Thanks, Anna. And, and perhaps uh, before uh, sort of diving into the examples, this gives me a chance a little bit to plug uh, some of the principles that we have been trying to develop and really advocate for through the ARA. And those principles we, we crafted through a process really with, this, with the intention of how do we drive this paradigm shift that we just talked about a few minutes ago? How do we really ensure that we get research that's fit for purpose? And, and so uh, as we were doing this evidence review, as we were looking for good examples of action research and practice, uh, there were a few key themes that these examples all illustrate, right? So they, they, for example, first principle is that research should be user-centered and demand-driven, that the research questions that are posed are framed by what stakeholders want to know, that they're not framed purely by, by what scientists want to know, but really by what, what stakeholders and users uh, want in terms of, of knowledge and information. Uh, but then that the process of research actually is not a process of working in silos and communicating, but really working in a co-producing manner. What does co-production mean? It means that the users are engaged in that design and research process itself. They're not sort of brought in as an afterthought, but they're really at the, at the center of that research activity. And that research activity itself uh, empowers the users in the community. So for example, one of the projects that our evidence review uh, looks at is the Chinantla Forest Monitoring Project in Oaxaca in, in Mexico. And that project looks at forest restoration and community-led activities and protection of land, where the research effort involved the communities themselves in monitoring, uh, and then obviously led to a greater empowerment of the community in terms of figuring out what was happening and how they could, uh, how they could respond to it. Another key dimension, another key principle, of course, is that how we value research should lay emphasis on impact, on the impact that it, it leads to, which kind of follows. An important principle, I think, which, which one of the projects, many projects actually in our evidence review bring it out, but for example, the work of the Watershed Organization Trust, WOTR in India, they've had many decades of experience working with communities on watershed management. And one of the things that this, this points out is the importance of addressing some of the underlying structural factors that often make us vulnerable in the first place. Right? So factors like inequities, not having communities that are empowered to participate in governance processes. And so the, the efforts by, the, by water focus on decentralization uh, and focus on strengthening uh, institutions that represent decentralized governance and then leading to long-term capacity building because communities now have the capacity to themselves uh, argue and advocate for uh, their needs instead of having uh, sort of people coming in and sort of doing flying in and flying out. So that whole process of, in a sense, democratization, both of, of action, but also of knowledge 
is something we have seen in a lot of the examples of action research we have come across as good practices. And that's precisely the kind of uh, action research that the Alliance is trying to catalyze and promote in the global south, but, uh, but everywhere. Well, Anand, this was a really enlightening conversation. And I'd like to thank you on behalf of everyone at EESI and all of our audience for joining us today. This is Professor Anand Petwardan, University of Maryland, Go Terps. Thanks so much for talking with us today about adaptation action research. Thanks so much, Anand. Pleasure to be here and uh, Go Terps from myself as well. That was a great conversation, Anna. Um, thanks so much for helping to make that possible. Um, I really am learning a lot about our work on climate adaptation. Uh, I'm glad that we spend so much time thinking about it. I think it's gonna be something that unfortunately more and more people across the United States and across the world have to get familiar with. We will be doing some briefings. We have some actually, we have some briefings coming up uh, in March around uh, landscape conservation, National Climate Adaptation Data. We also have some briefings coming up in a few months. Uh, we're doing a series called Living with Climate Change. We're gonna be looking at some climate impacts that are already affecting us. Uh, and we'll be sort of matching those briefings with uh, sort of very solutions-oriented technology briefings, looking at what do we need to accomplish uh, to get us emissions reductions on the timescale that will help us um, avoid the worst outcomes of climate change. And I think one thing that stuck out to me uh, was Anand's point that every half degree matters. It may not feel like a lot. It may not seem like a lot. What's the difference between 1.5 and 2? But when you look at the IPCC reports, when you look at the National Climate Assessment, there's a big difference between 1.5 degrees Celsius and 2 degrees Celsius. And I think probably a good reminder that we need to be very thoughtful about how we communicate that um, so that people don't say, oh, well, it's just half a degree. What's the difference between you know, 75.5 degrees and 76 degrees on a day. It doesn't work that way. It's not the same exact thing. We need to be careful about that. I really enjoyed the conversation as well. I think the paradigm shift and how we think about research is going to be really critical in the coming years. And that flows everywhere from those that provide the funding to the researchers and thinking about how they do research to the people um, that are experiencing climate impacts that are, you know, maybe generously going to be involved in this research so we can better understand what's happening and what sort of solutions work and what sorts of efforts actually don't work really well. And that way we can figure out best practices and move forward to have as many people as possible be able to be more resilient to the impacts that we're facing in the future. So think of research as one just small piece of the picture, but actually when we think about it in the way that Anand described it, it kind of riffles out and impacts so many areas of the work when we think about adaptation resilience. So that, that was something that'll really stick with me. Great. That's really interesting. Before we go, just one last thing. Wanted to also just put it out there that uh, we will be revisiting all of our work in the lead up to COP27. We put a lot of emphasis on climate adaptation in the lead up to COP26. And my guess is that we'll be doing something similar for COP27 because as Anand said, this is the decade of action. And it's really important that we keep on pressure, but also keep on providing science-based, nonpartisan policymaker education resources um, so that Congress is prepared to act um, before this decade gets away from us.
If you would like to learn more about EESI's work on climate adaptation, head to our website at www.eesi.org. Uh, and also please follow us on social media at EESI online for all of our recent updates. The Climate Conversation is published as a supplement to our bi-weekly newsletter, Climate Change Solutions. If you'd like to subscribe, you can go to www.eesi.org forward slash sign up to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time.